Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Benny and Dan coming at you with another episode of Juanced. Uh, I hope everyone had a good week. I had a scary week. I was convinced I had the COVID-19. You were paranoid. I really was paranoid. I had like anxiety and panic attacky stuff because I had a chest cold going on. I don't know. Maybe you had like a walking pneumonia. I think you were just trying to skip a workout. Probably. I was you, from- you start singing? Did you start singing? Ma, 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 Corona. Yeah. Ma, 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 Corona. The Rona. I, I thought I had the Rona and it was really just, uh, you know, my, my, my inner bitch. I, it's called, I, it's called a cold. You had a cold. I had a cold, but you live <laughs> in a day, you know, we live in a time when, uh, the cold and the kids at home and, you know, it was like exactly two weeks after my kids stopped going to gone to school and I thought like maybe they brought it home because my son had been in the emergency room a week earlier than that with some weird cough thing going on and I didn't know what was going on. So I got tested. The test came back within like 18 hours and it was negative and my wife came out in the morning when I got the test uh, results back and I looked at her and I was like had this stupid, stupid smile on my face and she's like, why do you have a smile like this? So you had Ebola instead? Was that what was going on? Yeah, I said it was Ebola. No, I looked at her I was like, I'm smiling because I feel like a total idiot. And you, like, are. Yeah, you and are. Yeah, you are. You are. You're a total idiot. Um, so yeah, don't get COVID. Uh, it's not, it's not fun. Um, I didn't have it, so I have no idea, but um, you shouldn't get it. Um, that's basically it. So without further ado, we've got a very special guest on that's a, a, a good friend of Dan's. They go back like, I guess 20 years or just something about, like that. Just about, just about 20 years. So uh, without further ado, Dan. Yeah, we are super excited uh, to have the author and the entrepreneur and the expert on multiple things, Avi Yorish. How you doing, Avi? Always good to see you, even if it's, uh, even if it's on uh, even if it's on Squadcast video. What can we do? I'm not going to read your whole bio. People can go to your website. It's super impressive. I met Avi years ago uh, back at the Washington Institute where he was a rising star in the kind of Middle East foreign policy think tank world. He's Only you and my mother would say such a thing, honestly. Rising star, shooting star, falling star. You were a young, whatever that fellowship was called, you wrote books on Hezbollah. I think you infiltrated Hezbollah with your impeccable Egyptian Arabic uh, only a few people will understand why that sentence didn't actually make sense. But uh, you actually went into Hezbollah. Um, we'll get a little more of that. You, uh, Avi, spent some time at the uh, Treasury Department, the Defense Department, became an expert on terror financing, Iran financing, started a company, wrote a few books, became an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. Um, and wrote a book that is will soon have been translated into 40 languages, uh, it is fascinating. 
We recommend all our listeners to buy it or at least invite Avi for a lecture, one of the two. Thou Shalt Innovate, How Israeli Ingenuity Repairs the World, came out in 2018. He has spoken all over the world and written and published numerous articles in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Foreign Affairs, and many, many, many more news outlets. Avi, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be on your show. We've been trying to make this work for a while because, uh, you know, we, we, we say we do Israel, the Jewish world and more. And, uh, we've and done beyond more, and beyond. We've done religion. We've done politics. We've done all sorts of takes on those. And we haven't had a chance to do Israeli tech. And, uh, so we said, let's get the guy or one of the guys who wrote the book on Israeli let's tech say, and Israeli. Let's say Shekhiano. If you've not done it, let's say Shekhiano. <laughs> <laughs> We're so glad to have you on the show, um, and I always enjoy talking to you. For people who don't know Avi, and uh, you'll, you'll get a screenshot on the promo, but he's wearing these uh, like glasses that look like he should be starting a tech unicorn type thing. Who says uh, I'm not done? It's in the works. I'm telling you, it's on the way. It's in the works. And I and I gotta say, for, the, for those who don't know you as long as I have, Avi is an intense, intense dude in the best kind of way. Always have five, twenty things going on at the same time, thinking a mile a minute, speaking a mile a minute, and uh, the fact that you pivoted somehow from doing Middle East to defense stuff to doing a book on how technology is innovating the world—it's just super impressive. So, um, what are you up to these days? Living in Washington D.C. and uh, trying to avoid the Rona. Walking around with my kids on the National Mall. Got myself a nice electric scooter this week. Chillax. All around Washington, D.C. Catch me on the mall, checking out the monuments, the Lincoln, <laughs> World War II. While they're, still, while, they're, while they're still there? Listen, I got to tell you, I think I was the only human there last night, literally. I mean, this is an unprecedented time in history, both in terms of the fact that we are facing a worldwide pandemic, and also there are no humans on the National Mall. I was literally the only person last night at the Washington Monument walking around, getting in my daily 15,000 steps. 15,000. See, most people do 10,000. He does 15. There was a, there was a recent study that showed that, uh, those that actually walk, not 10,000, 10,000 is like the basic threshold. They say that if you walk 15,000 steps, heart disease and you know, diabetes and all like the bad diseases, your chances of getting that are almost zero. That's why, uh, I am a nut about fitness. I've been crossfitting for about four years now, religiously. I, if I have to miss a day, it's a painful day in my life. Uh, even today, when I didn't want to work out, I did a hundred kettlebell swings. That was like my minimal. Have you? You know, have you? You got to do something every day. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Discovered yet this little magical ring called the Ura ring. What? What does that do? So he's he's showing us. Hold it up again. He's showing us this ring that looks like he stole it from an extra on Star Trek. Well, what does that ring it's like do? A it's, uh, so it's uh, it comes. I think it's either from Finland or from Holland. Aura is the latest and greatest piece of technology. It's a wearable. So instead of Fitbit, this is like Fitbit on steroids. It tells you what time to go to bed, what time to wake up, uh, how fit you are to work out that day, how well you slept, how many steps you get, your temperature. Eventually, it'll tell you if you got COVID or not. Amazing piece of technology. Unbelievable. You'll have to send me a link for that. I got to see what, what to yeah. do with that thing. What, what's that ring called? I got to I'll send you a link, but it's Ring.com. O-U-R-A ring.com. It's incredible. It's a mini EKG. I mean, honestly, I'm, it's an unbelievable piece of tech. Wow. Wait, so like it connects to an app or something so you can monitor levels and 
So it's instead of like a, a like instead a of the watch, basically, you're it's a Fitbit, but it's 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 like a mini EKG. It's way more advanced than the Fitbit and the Apple Watch. I mean, this is like light years away, light years ahead. Awesome. I'm always I'm always blown away by like where wearable technologies and kind of uh, I don't know where we're gonna go with that. You know, I've got a friend who's working at a company where they're doing the glasses and trying to make them. It, the technology exists to have glasses that interface with the world, but they're too big and bulky. So. There are companies trying to make them smaller and like actually practical. Well, if you believe if you believe Elon Musk, I mean, in five years we're going to have neural networks and we're going to like stop talking. We're just going to like telepathy and read each other's minds. And um, if you listen to if you listen to Elon Musk, I mean, look, in ten years we are going to have bases on the moon, and by in the next twenty years we're going to have bases on Mars. I mean, we really are at an unprecedented time in human history. Uh, futurists basically predict that over the course of the next. 15 years roughly, we're going to experience about 20,000 years worth of human change. We are an unprecedented period of history. What, what does that mean, like 20,000 years of human change? AI, food security, water security, tech, looking at the global challenges facing humanity. And I will say this, Israel is at the, at the top rung at figuring out some of these grand global challenges that are facing humanity. It really is interesting to take, to take a country that's the size of New Jersey and playing an important role, I would say an outsized role in solving some of the greatest challenges facing planet Earth today. See, I, I hear that and I see it. And then I live here. Benny lives here. You've spent a lot of time here. And how come <laughs> we always talk about How come there's also fax machines <laughs> at the banks? No, we've gotten past the fax machines. But, but in so many ways, we are so backwards. We are so... 20 years behind everything. And then we have Israeli entrepreneurs and scientists yeah. changing the world. Or, or I'll add to that. I think what Dan, what Dan is saying, we're seeing this like really, really uh, accentuated right now. Like you, you hear, you know, you, you'll read stuff that comes out in like a, a newsletter or something like Israel 21 C or, or something that comes out in Haaretz or times of Israel that talks about the latest and greatest Israeli tech. That's going to make uh, COVID testing extraordinarily you know, quick. And we're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to take a test. And in like 15 seconds, you get a result. And, and, and we don't have it here. Or, or there'll be an article <laughs> about how a certain company is debuting a, a, a rapid Corona test, an Israeli company from Belsheva, but they're going to test it in airports in Europe. And it's like all the stuff that we make, we don't get the benefit from it here. And, and, and on the, on the contrary, we just see things getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So it's like, it's general, what, what's, what's going know, on? Like what gives last week, um, last week we had a guy who, who turned out, it's not why we invited him on the show, but it turned out he's an expert on digital learning. And I see what my kids are going through. I see my wife's a teacher. I see what she's going through as far as, you know, the school system and how it's transitioning. And you read about Israeli companies revolutionizing the world, but Hey, you know what? You wrote the book on Israeli companies revolutionizing the world. Um, tell us how does, um, Guy go from being a Middle East expert, government official, Iran, terror financing, et cetera. How do you transition from that into writing a book about uh, Israeli innovation? Uh, how did that So happen? it's that, that, that story started in the summer of 2014. Like many of your listeners, I, was, uh, I came to Israel for the summer. I actually arrived. I'll never forget. We left the United States on July the 4th, 2014. My kids were very angry that they missed the fireworks. And we landed on July the 5th. And um, I went uh, the following day to enroll my child at a little preschool in, uh, in Jerusalem. And the preschool owner, she looked at me when I walked in as if I had grown a second head. She said, were, were you wearing those glasses? I was just thinking that. <laughs> I was wearing the pink ones then. Um, she said, uh, Mr. Yorosh, what, what are you doing here? 
I said, what do you mean? We, we've spoken before. I'm here to enroll my child at your preschool. And she said, haven't you heard? There's a war that's about to break out between Hamas and Israel. You ought to go home to America where it's nice and safe. And then it was my turn to look at her as if she had grown a third ear. I said, first of all, we are home. And second of all, no one's going to steal my child's birthright. Enroll him at your school. And she did, she did so, albeit reluctantly. And then a few days later, I heard the most horrible noise I had ever heard as an adult, as a parent in my life. I heard the sound. Was it a Donald, was it a Donald Trump speech? It was the sound of the code red on the radio, heralding the beginning of war. And I want you to know, I looked at me, I looked at my sleeping toddler in the back seat, and my stomach literally turned, and I thought, "Oh, this is not safe." It's one thing to come as an adult and make that decision to come to a war zone; it's quite another to bring a toddler. And I knew exactly what was coming. We we went home to our uh, our place in uh, Jerusalem, and we went up uh, went up to our apartment, and we did tubby time, and we did story time, and I I put my toddler to bed. And I waited about three hours, and sure enough, the sirens wailed, and I took my my terrified, almost two year old down four flights of stairs into the uh, into the bomb shelter. And I want you to know that my neighbors looked more terrified than my toddler. And we hung out there for about ten minutes, and then our building violently, violently shook. The booms, and um, you know, most listeners may or may not be aware what that sound is, but that was the sound of history being made. That was among the first times in human history that a missile went up into the air and another met it in mid-flight. It was the wonder and the awe of the Iron Dome. Up until that moment in time, Unbelievable. we would only see that sort of things in Star Wars, right? Because laser up, laser down. Um, that, for me, was the beginning of an obsession with tech, generally, and specifically Israeli technology. And over the course of that summer... I really, it was the, it was the most amazing summer of my life and the most depressing summer of my life. On the depressing side, um, uh, my, my, my friend and colleague, Steve Sotloff was beheaded by ISIS. You had in, uh, in Lebanon, you had Hezbollah that had a vice grip over the country. In Egypt, you had basically terrorists running around the Sinai Peninsula and obviously Hamas was shooting rockets and building tunnels into Israel. That was on the one hand. On the other hand, I got to experience the wonder and awe of Israeli technology and began to realize that Israeli tech was influencing and improving the lives of not millions of people, but billions of people around the world in the realms of medicine, science, agriculture, water, AI, space, you name it. You have Israeli tech that was really impacting deeply the lives of billions of people around the world. And that was a story that I knew I needed to tell. And it was a story that I was not aware of. How is it possible that a country the size of New Jersey has more startups combined than Canada, India, Japan, Korea, and the United Kingdom combined. And outside of the United States and China, how is it that Israel has more companies listed on the NASDAQ than any other country in the world? That was a story that I knew I needed to get to the bottom of and required some digging. That was not an intuitive story to find. You know, everyone's a, everyone is aware of the, of the fact that Israel is the startup nation, and it truly is the startup nation. But what what really is the secret of Israeli innovation shocked me as someone who's been coming to Israel my whole life and spent a significant amount of time. It even surprised me the story of how deeply embedded this technology is in our lives and specifically our lives to make it better was a story that I was not aware of. Wow. Wow. 
You, uh, Benny, you have a connection to, well, yeah, uh, I was just even, right? You just said that and I, and I, love I, the and I kind of like stopped, uh, and this is going to kind of take us off track, but that's okay. Um, I, I lived with Steve for, for three years. He's my roommate at the IDC. Oh. Uh, like best of friends, best of friends. Um, and, and that was the summer, the summer he got kidnapped. He came to Israel for my wedding in July of 2013. And then he went from here to Turkey and then into Syria and, and, you know, we never heard from him again. I got married in July. He, I think he was kidnapped on August. I got married in July 17th. He was kidnapped on August 4th or something. I think August 4th or August 5th. Um, and I, we didn't hear from him until October. Uh, no, you didn't hear from him. We, we, I didn't hear of him until October. His, uh, his sister called me and told me kind of what was going on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I remember that summer. I remember, uh, it was just a really, really, really shitty, um, I, mean, I have no words. I can't. I can't talk about you know um, what it what he meant to me and what that you know. It's surreal. It's surreal even today. Um, I'm sure you feel the same. Not only do I feel the same way, um, Steve, as, as some of you are might be aware, was a tremendous journalist, and he managed to um, smuggle out a letter. And in that letter, he wrote something that uh, has shaped the course of my adult life. He wrote, your second life begins the day you realize your first will end. And that for me was a self-exploration of, wow, that's it. My first life is going to end. You might as well live it. Not as well, not, not even say you might as well. We have the great privilege and the obligation to live our lives to the fullest ex- extent possible and truly do our part to make the world a better place. That for me was a, was a turning point in time. And um, that story is one that I think about regularly. Wow. All the time. Um, and, and he was a tremendous journalist. And it's just so funny because Steve, I mean, I knew Steve at a time when he was just starting out. I mean, he'd moved to Israel. He had come out of, you know, Kimball Academy and, and uh, you know, came to Israel from Florida. And he was a total, like, fun, loving party type guy. But he, he then got really serious into trying to make it happen with journalism. And out of all of the people in our, in our, in our class at the IDC, I was the proudest of Steve and not just because he was, you know, my, my close friend, but because he had the audacity to actually do the things that I don't think any of us would have, would have done like, you know, to go to the places that he went to during the times that he was there. I mean, you talk about putting your money where your mouth is, um, you know, nobody can take that away from him, that legacy. And um, and, and, and that'll be there forever and ever and ever. And it's just the, 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 the height of irony that, uh, you know, it, he had to be murdered to become as famous as he did. Uh, because, you know, I, I have no doubt that if, if, uh, he was still around, you know, his writing would have got him there sooner or later because it was tremendous and it was, it was terrific. Um, so yeah. So yeah, to put your life on the line for a story. To, for the truth, right? For the world to see what was happening. I mean, that was the height of the civil war. That was like when ISIS was really taking over swaths of territory and was at its full strength. Yeah. That's listen. I put my life on the line now to come here to do this. I mean, we brave COVID. You, you put your uh, brave you, you risk COVID. getting. I saw a ticket. point out the two of you are not two meters away from each other. Like this is literally it is a we're danger not. to society, and I literally must. I got. I got to break up this party. I'm glad that both of you have been tested. Well, I'm clean. I had my I had my COVID test. Today. I was I'm, tested I'm, last I'm week. It's a good thing that I'm on the other end of the camera because I would not be even close to two meters away from you guys. I'd be like, you're on the end of the room. Yeah. 
I got I got to say, aside from my family, I think I think Benny's the only person that I'm ever. So he's in, in your he's with. in your your circle of love and trust. He's in the bubble. He's in the That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you you actually, I mean, I was joking at the beginning, but you actually went to Hezbollah back uh, in the day. I remember. And, um, I mean, that's also kind of putting your life on the line considering they have been known to kidnap and, and, and execute, you know, Western journalists and academics and, and government officials. I mean, and people named Avi and people with Israeli citizenship who speak fluent Hebrew, uh, named Avi. (laughs) What, what remind me what that was? It was right around when we met and you were either had just come back from Hezbollah or you were on your way there. What was the story? So I, uh, by way of background, I did graduate work at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Islamic history and Arabic. And then I moved to Cairo, where I studied Islamic history and Arabic at Al-Azhar University, which is the preeminent school of Sunni Islamic learning, and uh, the American University in Cairo. And I joined the Washington Institute in the summer of 2001, just before 9-11. And uh, as a Sora fellow... I wrote a book on Hezbollah's Almanar TV. Almanar TV at the time had more viewers combined than Fox, CNN, and MSNBC combined. It had about 20 to 25 wow. million viewers a day, like a huge network. For, for listeners that don't know what that is, Almanar, Almanar is owned and operated by Hezbollah, a terrorist organization that until 9-11 killed more Americans than any other terrorist organization and had an outsized role in influencing the hearts and minds of Arabs and Muslims around the world because of this tremendous mouthpiece that basically was terror television that I always like to say made Al Jazeera look like a Girl Scout cookie infomercial. It really was terror TV about killing uh, killing civilians, killing uh, American uh, service members in Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to uh, encourage and incite suicide bombing. It was really sophisticated too. Very sophisticated. Um, and uh, after joining the Washington Institute, I, as a sore fellow, decided to write a book on his bulls on TV. And in the summer of 2002, I traveled to uh, Lebanon and interviewed his bull officials, on officials, among others. And um, yeah, I mean, look, I had already spent a lot of time in the region with a lot of unsavory characters. I'd spent time with Hamas, Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Um, and his for me was a, even for me, it was an eye opening experience. I had watched thousands of hours of their television programming, and I thought there was no way that these guys actually believe their propaganda. Truly, this has got to be a show. There's, there's no way. And when I interviewed them, it really it opened my eyes that these are individuals that are the true believers. They mean what they say, and they say what they believe. Can you give an example of like the kind of outlandish propaganda that you would find it hard that they would believe? So, for example, they had a show in, uh, at the time. They had a, it was a show about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is obviously a, a false and blatant uh, lie. Um, and they had a scene that I'll never forget, that they took a Jewish child uh, – I'm sorry, they took a, a Muslim child. Jews took a Muslim child into the basement, slit his throat, and used the blood to bake matzahs on Passover. And Every year. We did every year. Yeah, you don't do that. It's not even worth joking over, friends. I mean, this is like, this is the type of propaganda that it's just so, it's beyond believable. And, um, and they believe it. And they believe it. And they believe it. And they continue to spread that lie. 
I'll never forget that I interviewed the uh, the man that uh, killed the Navy diver in 1982, who was the top 10 most wanted. He was at the time on the top 10 most wanted FBI list. And um, he said to me at the time, I'll never forget, there are no Israeli civilians. We will find everyone, every Israeli child, when the time comes in, we will put a bullet through their head. And I, it was, he was like, there, there are no civilians. The words he, he said, there are no civilians in Israel. Not women, not children, all soldiers. And I, I found that truly shocking. I remember going back to my hotel room and having to uh, really digest. Because I, up until that point in time, I had, I had never heard that level of rhetoric before. That level of, uh, that level of hate, that level of you value death over life. I, I had not, I personally had never experienced that up until that point in time. And I can truly say that after those series of interviews, I became a, a completely different person. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's intense. Um, you know, I'm now, um, we've said this on a couple of different episodes. I'm involved in talking to a lot of Emiratis and, and people from the Gulf. Um, and one of the things that they've told me in kind of private conversations is that they grew up with a lot of deep anti-Semitism. Um, because a lot of their school teachers were Palestinian, Syrian, Egyptian, Jordanian uh, immigrants um, who made their way to the Gulf to look for work. And so they grew up with all of these kind of anti-Semitic tropes and, and anti-Zionist tropes. And, and, and what they explained to me was really only in the last decade, two decades, that their society, you know, kind of enough people are going abroad, meeting Jews, meeting Israelis and be like, oh, these are normal people. In fact, they're, they're nice people. And um, you, you see like something starting to click in their minds. I wonder how much of that is, is happening in Lebanon where Hezbollah is, is massively influential and where Shias are, what, 40, 50% of the country? I mean, look, we are seeing uh, Lebanon in particular has uh, – when I went to Lebanon, and I've been a few times, uh, I always – I was convinced that uh, Shimon Peres had been many, many times before he wrote The, Middle, the New Middle East. Uh, Israelis and Lebanese drive the same. They work the same. They travel the same, they party the same, they curse the same. It really is quite a, should we reach the era of peace for the region? I am convinced that uh, Lebanese and, and Israelis will be a, uh, will be like two peas in a pot. Now look, we're, we're now in the, in the stage on Hubeidan Khadash. We're in the new, new stage of the game. Uh, of all the countries that, that Israel could have made peace with, I am the most excited about uh, the UAE. I've been to, I've been to the Gulf. I've been to uh, the UAE and Dubai, of course. And uh, when you look at it, you know, we're, today we're going to talk about tech. When you look at technologically speaking, these are the two most advanced technological centers in the Middle East. Back in February, I was in, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia for, uh, in part to, uh, to talk about my book about Bashar al-Tinevate. And um, I, which just came out, in which Arabic. just came out in Arabic. It's now a free download. And, and- I'm going to ask you, by the way, because we are getting a small and growing listenership in the UAE, um, and I advertised your book actually just yesterday in this forum that I'm a part of, of, of people from the UAE and Israel. Can you give a, a quick shout out to our listeners I'm in the UAE? Psyched. I'm psyched that listeners in the UAE are listening to the show in particular. We are looking forward to welcoming you in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and likewise, we are looking forward to spending time in Dubai. I, uh, in particular, I'm, I'm, I, I want to come back very soon in order to see a few things. One, I want to see the, uh, the Louvre that's, uh, in Abu Dhabi. And I want to, I, the last time I was there, I, uh, I almost got to go to the tallest building in the world, but my time in Dubai is 
I have my fondest memories of uh, ever in the region in, in Dubai. There's, Dubai is like, I always say it's like, it's the Middle East, Shangri-La, and uh, Vegas combined on steroids. <laughs> Good times. Sounds about right. <laughs> when you say you, you almost got to go, like you ran out of time, you got up to like the 50th floor. And something like that. They down. literally just <laughs> opened, they had just opened the building that week and they wanted something like $700 to go to the top of the building. I was like, there was no way I was spending 700 bucks to go to the top of this like super tall building to begin with. I didn't, I didn't have it in me. I hear that they've dropped the prices and I'm ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to get out there as soon as this uh, closure is over. But you're, you're excited about this. I mean, we're, we're talking now about how, you know, you're combining Israeli innovation and they're really forward thinking over there and, and forget the money. They, they're really forward thinking in how to, to do business and how to build infrastructure and how to connect globally. I mean, they're really turning into a hub of, you know, South Asia, Middle East, East Africa. Yes, yes, and yes, 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 and yes. I will tell you, I mean, excited. I would say I'm like a child. I'm like a small child in a, in a, yeah. uh, in a toy shop at the moment. I remember uh, my earliest memory. Go, one of my earliest memories goes back to March of 1979. Um, my family was making Aliyah, uh, was making Aliyah. And three days after Menachem Begin signed the peace accords in Washington, D.C., he wanted to meet families that were coming to Israel that week. I was very lucky in that we were selected to go meet him three days afterwards. And the, cool. the man was absolutely beaming. I, uh, we got to his uh, suite at the Waldorf Astoria. I'll never forget. And uh, he called our family over. And I got to uh, climb into his lap. And uh, he said to me, do you, do you speak any Hebrew? Do you, do you know any Hebrew? And I said, I only know one word. And he said, what is it? I said, I know the word shalom for peace. And this grandfather-like figure literally, you know, hugs me, wants to come <laughs> to my bar mitzvah. It was really one of these amazing moments in time where peace was really around the corner. Um, we've now experienced an unprecedented moment in time where we've now had two peace agreements signed. And I... It, it really... Yeah. It really is. And I really believe that we are at the, and I've been saying this for quite some time. I believe that we are on the precipice of the most verdant decade uh, in the region for a number of reasons. Yeah. On, on the one hand, and we can talk about this at the show, like we have major, major global challenges that are facing the region and the world. And Israel has the solutions to many of their working on the solutions or has the solutions to many of those problems. And the future belongs to countries who innovate. The future belongs, our moment when it comes to Israel is now. We've been waiting for this moment for 2,000 years, and our moment is now. And I believe that we are going to see a whole new reality uh, in the region and the world in the next 10 to 15 years. Look, I, I, Let's put it this way. By 2030, we're not going to have any more disease. By 2030, artificial intelligence and virtual reality, uh, reality and virtual reality are going to be indistinguishable from one another. By 2030, we're going to it's going to take us 10 more years to cure COVID. Is that what you're we are literally yes. on the precipice of, of solving major, major global challenges. And look, by 2030, computers are going to process faster than the human brain. We're going to literally have thoughts in 2030 that we were unable to have before because we were constrained by the speed of our processing. We are going to solve major grand global challenges in ways that we cannot even imagine today. We're going to experience 20 to 25,000 years worth of change over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. This is un do you, unbelievable. Do you think that like 
this is going to sound like I'm making things really simplified, but like, do you think that our monkey brains are going to be able to keep up with the pace of that and, and, and know how to handle our capabilities responsibly? I remember when you and I, no, for real, for real, for real, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious about it. Like you and I went and, and heard, uh, who was I, I am often referred to as a large monkey. So I'm okay you are a large monkey. We're all space monkeys. We're monkeys, uh, <laughs> on a, on a, on a, yeah, on yeah, a giant spacecraft running through the universe. <laughs> no, but like for real, I mean, you have like Moore's law. We're going, you know, at the exponential development of, uh, Moore's law has been broken. Up, by the way, broken. Um, we went and, and heard Tom Friedman speak about his his latest book. Thank, and I'm, thank I'm you for being late, which right is now. fabulous. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and he was talking about this. Like, we have literally achieved what I'm sure to any one of our ancestors 2,000 years ago would look at what we're capable of doing today. When, we're gods. A hundred years ago. We, yeah, a hundred years ago. We are gods. Ago. We're gods. We have godlike powers and capability. And the question that I always have, and, and I was joking about this before when I was talking about Elon Musk and, like, neural networks and whatnot, but it's like, do we are we ready for that? Are we ready to have that kind of power in terms of our human psychology? I'm not talking about things that are like we're going to make, uh, you know, we're going to solve uh, I'll add climate war, climate change, and things like this. But like things were literally like we're talking about, um, you know, whether whether it is something like a Neuralink or, or whether it is something that's going to like deeply change the way that we that we work economically and and technology that's going to replace jobs. Like, are we going to be able to find solutions for the impact? of what technology might be in the next 10 or 15 years that are, you know, are able to create a model society or, or model countries for, for people to, to live in. Well, there, there's another aspect here. Are we going to be able to create the moral and ethical foundations for what we'll be able to achieve? I mean, kind of humanity, at least where we are now, I feel like we're at a, we're at a place where our capabilities might, might be our pacing where our ethical, safety net if you want to call it that is is you know do we do we have the right foundation you can call it religion you can call it ethics you can call it whatever you want to to be able to take us where technology is going to take us this too shall be revealed then i don't have a magic bullet or an, or an answer to you but i can tell you that we are on the precipice of being able to cure the sick feed the hungry help the needy in ways that were unimaginable before uh, we can use that power for good, or we can use that power for evil. And um, it's up to responsible governments, techno-philanthropists, and individuals to really push the boundaries forward and really choose light over darkness. Look, I, I will say this about the Jewish people. We for, and I, I believe that there are really three or four secrets to Israel's success. And that really does shape, I think, where humanity potentially goes. For the last 1,500 years, 2,000 years roughly, um, we have been praying the Elenu prayer three times a day, which calls upon us to to fix the world in the image of God. The Mishnah, no less than 15, 15, 20 times, instructs us to engage in tikkun olam, to repair the world. The prophet Isaiah calls upon us all to bring more light to the world. And you cannot repeat the idea of curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy for thousands of years and for that not to have a deep impact on the cultural DNA of your people. On Saturday nights, the Jewish people have been praying the quinta, what I believe is the quintessential prayer, which is to separate between the holiness and the mundane and to separate between light and darkness. And the minute you start seeing the world between light and darkness, for me, it was a moment that the world fundamentally changed. 
we, Ben Gurion, 72 years ago, stood at the lectern and said the phone, said two, two amazing things. He said, number one, the gates of Israel are officially open after 2,000 years. Members of the Jewish faith are welcome to come home. We've been waiting for this moment for 2,000 years. But he said something else that was extraordinary. He said, quote, Israel has been granted the great privilege and the obligation to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 20th century. Now, each of us, each of your podcast listeners, all of us now have this great privilege and obligation to tackle some of the gravest challenges of the 21st century. And I will say that Israeli technology is doing that today in an unprecedented way. We are curing the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy in ways that were unimaginable 72 years ago and certainly 2,000 years ago. Now, I will say this to, to your point of where we started the podcast. I want to be absolutely a thousand percent clear. We all know that Israel is not a Gan Eden. It's not a paradise. It has problems between the very rich and the very poor, problems with its Arab neighbors, problems with housing, problems, problems, problems up the yin yang. Okay. And no one listening to this podcast should be under the false illusion that Israel is the most innovative place on the planet. Guess what? We're not. Israel is not the most innovative place on the planet. According to Bloomberg, I think this, uh, this year Israel became number five. Israel is very good at being the startup nation. Israel is not very good at being the scale-up nation. Israel is extraordinary at innovations that cure the sick, feed the hungry, help the needy. It is not extraordinary when it comes to public services. You take a country like Estonia, when it comes to e-government, extraordinary. The country functions unbelievably. Israel, when it comes to public services, does not function in a in an efficient right. manner. Um, ultimately... When you look at the innovations coming from Israel, water, food, uh, medicine, that is where Israel really does shine. It really is what separates it from the rest of the world. I think in a, it is playing an outsized role in solving these challenges. So you said that you think that it comes from, that your thesis is that it comes from our well, tradition. It, it actually um, rests on three, the secrets of Israel rests on three legs. Well, really four. The first is um, is diversity. Israel is the most diverse place on the planet. Christians, Muslims, and Jews. Christians of every stripe and every variety. Muslims of every stripe of every variety. And Jews from all over the world. So one, I would like to say that diversity powers the Israeli technological ecosystem. Two is secular values. Israel reveres its secular institutions, primarily the military, and all but one of its universities are secular. The third is the prophetic tradition, this idea that we are here to separate between darkness and light and make the world a better place. And the last is the idea that failure is very much part and parcel of the of our ability to succeed. You cannot succeed if you do not fail. And that is something all four, when you take all four of those and you combine it in an ecosystem like Israel, it achieves wonderful things. I'll, I'll challenge you on that last one. Um, you could also say that in Israel's case, and a lot of the reasons that we have become successful in a lot of things, you can think about the military. You can think about, um, you know, having to solve some major problems, water, right? Our water challenges, which are not even a challenge anymore. Uh, you could you could also say failure is not an option here. We, we're a country that hasn't had the luxury of being able to fail at some of our biggest challenges. You know, there's definitely something to that, but failure, and until you actually found the water solutions, there were a thousand failures. There was failure, never ever give up. Failure is not an option, but in order to get there, 
you must fail many, many yeah. times. So, th- so this is one of the innovations you wrote about in, in the book, right? So let's, water. let's talk about water. There are, there are really um, five innovations, some of which have come out of Israel and some of which have been innovated abroad, but the, the sum of uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts in this particular instance. So let's talk about the five innovations that have really uh, allowed Israel to become a water superpower. Despite the fact that it is 60% desert, Israel has more water than it knows what to do with. Israel is today the only self-declared water superpower which means that it is not dependent on the weather or its neighbors for its water consumption, its water needs. So how did it do it? The first is desalination. Desalination was actually innovated abroad. Uh, it, was, it was innovated in California in the 1960s. And the gentleman who uh, created it made Aliyah and then perfected it at Ben-Gurion University. Reverse osmosis was perfected at Ben-Gurion University. Israel today has built over 400 desalination plants in 40 yeah, in 40 countries around the world, including the largest desalination plant in the Western Hemisphere in California and the largest desalination plant in China and in India. Israel itself has five desalination plants, which provide well over 50, 60 percent of its of its um, uh, of, of its potable water needs, of its consumable water. So the first is and just to be clear, desalination means you take water from the ocean and you turn it into sweet drinking water. Number one. So it would be amazing if Israel just had five desalination plants, but it has gone beyond that and improved the world in that it has built so many desalination plants around the world, number one. Number two is drip irrigation. Drip irrigation is water that comes out of these little plastic tubes. You emit a roughly a third of the water, and you double the yield of anything that is grown. Simcha Blas innovated this in the 1960s. Um, which is a netafim. In netafim. Today, if you live in the United States, you can, uh, you can get, uh, drip irrigation in, uh, in, in Home Depot. That technology today is used by over a billion farmers around the world. Not million, but over a billion farmers around the world. The third is recycling of wastewater. When you, when, when we go to the toilet in the United States and we flush our, uh, we, we flush, we generally tend to think of sewage as being disgusting. In Israel, Which uh, not so much, right? In Israel, it is it is actually your sewage is um, one of the most valuable commodities you can buy or sell. When I flush my toilet here in Washington, D.C., the Water Authority cleans it gener- generally twice and then dumps it back into the waters, the streams, and the ponds. In Israel, that water is cleaned five times. Uh, first, the human waste is removed and can uh, it is used as fertilizer. And, uh, and then the, uh, the rest of that water is cleaned five times and 90% of it is used for agricultural purposes. You recycle 90% of that water. Technically, you could drink that water, but the idea of drinking sewage water is a little disgusting. So Israel doesn't do it, but that is where we're actually headed over the course of the next 10 years. Israel is 90%. The next country down is Spain at 18%. And the United States is about 5%. We, I took the kids on, on uh, one of the Cholomoed vacations, and we went to the biggest um, treatment plant, waste treatment plant in Israel. With the Shafdan. The Shafdan, where they, they give you an amazing tour. If anyone's ever in Israel, this is it's kind of it's, – it's for tourism, but it's off the beaten path of tourism. And uh, they show you the whole process. They take you around. It's unbelievable. It's, it's really unbelievable what they're doing with it. So you were saying uh, we do that. So there's the Netafim. There's the desalination. Um, there is something called Takadu. 
Hakadi, which sounds Japanese but is very Israeli, it aggregates big data and tells water authorities in Israel and around the world when there is a, a breach in the pipes. And lastly, this is my favorite innovation, is the two-button toilet. Ready? Button one, button two, number one, yep. two, big, big flush, little flush. flush. And when you combine those those five innovations, Israel has become a water superpower. Now, let's, let's talk about why that's important. Egypt, a country that I lived in for a few years, in five years, by 2025, Egypt is going to run out of water. That's a country of 100 million people is going to run out of water. Iran, a country that today points its missiles at Israel, in the next 10 years, over 50% of its population, today, 80 million people, are going to become water refugees. The same trend line is true in Europe. 40 out of the 50 United States are uh, going to are going to achieve massive water shortages over the course of the next decade. I can only imagine that countries like Egypt and Israel will become best of friends, and many, many parts of the world are going to be leveraging Israeli technology when it comes to water innovations. We can only hope. Yep. Uh, but I know that Israel just exceeds in so many other realms of technology. And um, it's important to delve into some of the other areas where Israel is, is excelling right now, and, and maybe to talk about some of the examples that you've written about uh, and that you have uh, you know, a lot of familiarity with. Obviously, defense uh, and defense technologies is something that I think... Well, I mean, the Iron Dome that you mentioned at the beginning, by, by the way, um, one of two of my positions when I was in uniform... Um, one of them, I was I was on the team that really coordinated and strategized with the Defense Department in, in the United con- States, in, in the U.S. Defense Department. Sorry, um, putting together the entire missile defense architecture. So obviously, I wasn't on the um, engineering side of things nor the operational side of things, but I remember years of really unbelievable, fascinating cooperation on. What does this architecture look like from a strategic perspective and then linking with the, you know, the engineers and then linking with the operational guys and then actually going out and seeing the batteries as they were being deployed and seeing the tests and all this stuff. It was it was unbelievable. And then in um, was it? Oh, 2010. So I was working for Benny Gantz back when he was the deputy chief. And I remember it was either him or the guy immediately after him when I was still there. And he made the operational decision to get the Iron Dome up as fast as possible and operational even before it was a little ready. And um, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it revolutionized how you talked about it from a society perspective, and maybe you get into this in your book, it revolutionized how militaries and how countries can approach war. Well, I know from, from me, I mean, I live, I live in the south uh, here in Israel, and we have one Probably a half a mile from my house, I drive by it. To, I drove by it today like three times. Every time I drive in and out of where I live, I, I can see it. Um, and and I just remember, like when you were talking about your experiences in Jerusalem in 2014, I was live you know I live in Gadara, and and for us, I mean that also, you know, it it it, it was a big deal. That was the first time where we really had this technology, and you know, for the first time, we didn't feel scared anymore. You still have to get your ass to the shelter. Uh, you get your ass to the shelter, but like if you're living in your house, I mean, my children live in the mamad, basically. Their room right. is the mamad. So at night, they don't have to like pick them up and move. I walk from my room to their room, which is like just walking. We don't, we don't have door. a mamad here. So we, we, no, we don't. So we ran to, we had to run. It's the first time you said run down four flights of stairs. So the first time we did that, uh, I remember 2014 because that was the first time 
I think rockets had really reached Rehovot. They were, it was the first time they reached Jerusalem. It was the first time they reached Rehovot. Um, and, uh, I, we picked them up. We ran all the way down four flights of stairs and like the next, we probably had four or five more rockets that, um, war, whatever it was. And, uh, we just got lazy and the whole building got lazy and we just ran to the stairwell. <laughs> so we're like, we're, well, that's we're, weird we're, we're not going a, down. That's weird that you don't have a Mamad, but for us, what the, what, what it's done for us in terms of the way that we feel when, when we're undergoing these sorts of attacks, at least for me, my wife still gets, still gets a little bit scared about it, but after all of these years and all of the different, uh, different, uh, azakot or, or, or sirens or alarms that we've had, um, thankfully not, not so much in recent, uh, in recent years, but, uh, I hesitate to even say this because it, it kind of minimizes the impact of, of war, but it like, it feels to me now more like a pain in the ass than something that's truly terrifying or frightening. Um, that's, even, that's for us though. I mean, people I who know, live along Gaza don't have that luxury. No. Like the Iron Dome doesn't really cover them so much. Um, what, what was, what's your take on how it revolutionized or will revolutionize the world? I mean, what, what's, and I have to add, I, I read in the newspaper today that the United States received its de- the delivery of the, its first two Iron Dome batteries today. I mean, look, from my perspective, the Iron Dome, what it did was it allowed Israel to make decisions that were – it didn't force Israel's hand for the first time. If you had had rockets ahead of time that landed in civilian areas, Israel would have been forced to act. So number one, it gave it a lot more breathing room. Number two, most people don't understand that the Iron Dome is actually not an offensive weapon, but a defensive weapon. And uh, Iron Dome, I'd say, saved an untold number of lives on both sides of the border. It saved lives on when a rocket went up and then it did not fall in in a civilian center. So obviously it saved lives there. But secondly, in the absence of that, Israel would have been forced to send in its ground troops and an untold number of lives would have been would have been lost as a result of the ground operation. So I, I look at as I look at Iron Dome as being one of the most revolutionary weapons of all time in that regard. It is both. It is just. It is a almost purely defensive weapon. I, I agree, and and you know if you look at other countries, um, I, I'm not aware of any other country. Maybe you can talk about in Iraq and maybe you know embassies and things like that. But there's no other countries that are catching rockets. Um, um, from neighboring countries or neighboring terrorist entities at this moment, but kind of the future of asymmetric warfare and terrorist groups and, and non-state uh, entities, um, or you can look at what's happening between Saudi Arabia and Yemen and the Houthis in Yemen. You know, this is kind of where, you know, war doesn't develop in a parallel symmetric manner. manner it, it develops in this asymmetric manner where, where the weak developed a strategy of, of missiles. Okay, you're going to have bigger planes and tanks. Okay, we're going to develop missiles and we're just going to shoot over your, your defensive capabilities. And so having this capability that allows you to neutralize it, even partially, yeah, I think you said it absolutely right. It gives you a ton of breathing space and lets you slow down your decision making and not have to rush into decisions like sending in ground troops that are politically necessary but would be a disaster to both sides um what, what's some of the other um you know kind of the mind-blowing i mean they're all mind-blowing otherwise you wouldn't have written about them but what's kind of one of one or two of the other really mind-blowing innovations that that really made you stop and and say this is literally going to change the world so i i think the 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 one that really blew my mind was United Rescue or United Hatzalah, which is an organization that every Israeli is aware of and most people around the world are not yet. For those of you who have not spent time in Israel, 
over the course of the last 10 years, you'll see everywhere uh, what appear to be Pizza Hut mopeds that are either uh, that are either orange or red everywhere in the country. And though they're not delivering pizza. Uh, Ellie Beer, who is a, uh, the founder of the organization, who I will, uh, who I'm privileged to call a friend and, uh, and an ally. And frankly, I, I actually spoke to him a little earlier in the day. All I want to do is hug this man. He founded the organization that did three extraordinary things. The first is he brought together an army. He banded together an army of 6,000 emergency responders. Muslims, Christians, and Jews. He trained, many of them were trained before. Secondly, we all have this amazing little device in our hands called a smartphone. And up, up until COVID, when we wanted to uh, call a cab or a taxi, at least, at least in the United States, not necessarily in Israel, we did something magical. We pressed a button and like magic, an Uber or a Lyft or a Get or a Via would arrive at my home. And what Ellie did was he created an app for the phone that instead of calling a cab, geospatially located the five nearest emergency responders. And he gave many of them this amazing device called an AmbuCycle. Now, in Israel, like everywhere else around the world, the, the national average for an ambulance to arrive at the scene of a medical emergency is about 22 minutes. That is way too long for a country that's experienced war and terrorism over the course of the last 72 years. So Ellie created these three innovations, and I'm glad both of you are sitting down, and I hope our listeners are sitting down, because the national average anywhere in Israel for an emergency responder to arrive today is three minutes. And in every major city, it's 90 seconds. I don't get to say Scooby-Doo, and literally someone comes to save my life. Now, again, you could say that's extraordinary, but what's even more unbelievable Israel is that Israel has taken this model and it's now scaled it up and it's now in nine or 10 different countries, including the United States. The first city to have rolled this out is Jersey City, but there is no reason why we don't have this cheap, scalable technology in every major city in the world and in every city in the United States. We have literally millions of emergency responders. Every one of them has a smartphone device and we I think we could put together a few shekels for these ambicycles. Pizza Hut did it. So can we. There's no reason why we can't save an extraordinary number of lives. No, that's incredible. It's incredible. And I've got friends who volunteer in this. Has and, he, uh, has he, I know that Ellie Bear had, had COVID. Has he, has he recovered? So Ellie, I actually, I saw Ellie uh, at the APAC policy conference at the beginning of March. And I bring my kids every year to the policy conference. And we're literally, we're hugging him. We're kissing him. We're taking selfies with him. And then a week later, he uh, was raising money uh, for his organization in Miami, and he contracted COVID, and he nearly died three times. He really was. He was in very, very bad shape. Uh, it really is a miracle that he survived and lived. Uh, he uh, flew back to Israel to be with his family. He was uh, art, he was intubated, which is a term I was not aware of before. But he was literally they they, they put it they induced a coma. Um, in order to try and save his life. He was one of the early cases of COVID. And uh, he did survive. He did live. And today, Ellie is uh, uh, spending all of his effort in order to grow United Atzala or United Rescue and really try and save more lives. He is, he is one of the 36, I believe, one of the 36 hidden Sadiqim in the world today in terms of trying to make the world a better place. Wow. 
well, good for him. I'm glad that he's doing that he's doing better. He, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, they had a, a an expose about him on the TV here in Israel, and it was just you know, first. It's very ironic that like the guy who's you know United Atala is 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 suffering from this awful disease. Um, but but um, you know I, I wasn't aware of you know how he was doing today. So I'm glad that he's doing well. Yeah, you know we, we were discussing between ourselves here, um, and we kind of mentioned this before that uh we're really good at coming we <laughs> like i did anything um israel uh, israelis are really good at this innovation you've done nothing dan i haven't done a lot i'll be honest with no. you um I, I grow a mean beard that's what i do we're great at coming up with these world literally world changing innovations but our our country itself is not let's say the most efficient of first world countries um why do you think that is so I think you need to differentiate between uh, what happens in the private sector and what happens in the public sector. From a private sector perspective, Israel is one of mm-hmm. the most advanced places in the world. When it comes to the public sector, uh, Israel in many ways is, is I don't want to say far behind, but it's certainly not anywhere close to the head of the pack. I think that is, being, that is a generous way of putting it. Right. Uh, if you look at countries like Estonia or Singapore, that have embraced a e-government platform that is the future. When you look 10, 15, 20 years into the future, we're going to have many, many more e-governments. And Estonia is the world's poster style today where you can get your driver's license online. It is a 100% of everything in society happens in the cloud. You register a birth certificate, a death certificate, a marriage. You pay your traffic tickets. You can vote in the cloud. Your electronic medical records are in the cloud. Everything happens in the cloud. And the story there is Estonia essentially realized that it could be uh, Russia could take over tomorrow uh, through war. And they wanted to basically be able to do everything in the cloud so that in an event we had a catastrophe, the country would continue to run. Most people today, I think, would have a hard time identifying where Estonia is on the map and would find it even more unbelievable to believe that they are the world's leading e-government anywhere on the planet. And that is the model that we will all be pursuing in the years to come. So to answer your question, Israel has not yet made the pivot pivot when it comes to e-government, but I believe that in the next decade it will and will become a leading e-government e-services provider, and Israel will lead the pack. It requires tremendous vision. Uh, the president of Estonia, who grew up in New Jersey, had <laughs> this vision and basically all of his political capital in order to make it happen. I truly, I, I hope and believe that a future Israeli politician uh, will will ram this, ram, that's a little bit strong, will really drive that vision home and make it a reality. If you will, it is no dream. Does that mean that they have to get rid of like the bureaucratic, the bureaucratic class of, of employees, of workers? Uh... Um, it certainly doesn't. It, it, it basically makes it far more efficient. Government will get much, much smaller and much that more. That sounds like, that sounds like a oxymoron. If anyone has ever met anything involving the Israeli bureaucracy or the Israeli government, I mean, very nice people. <laughs> um, but when you think of Israeli bureaucracy, you think of mediocrity, um, and, and it's stunning because you know I remember uh, again back back to the military. You know we we have uh, a civil a, a civilian you know mass uh, um, conscript military right. Everyone or almost everyone has to serve, so, so you get the best of the best, but you also get the middle of the middle and the lowest of the low, and we're all in one military. And so you see what an organization 
can look like. And you see what an organization that funnels the best of the best to certain places and then it's funneling everyone else to other places and you see what you you see how these organizations run and and it's just like on a daily basis when you're trying to get certain things done you know like I was in intelligence and everyone talks about Israeli intelligence and it's it really is the best or or one of the top 3 intelligence services in the entire world um from every perspective and then you see like the buildings we live in or like you know what kind of the infrastructure we have or how our you know, personnel is run or all these kind of things. And you say, where are we living? You know, what kind of world is this? You know, this kind of uh, takes us, you're working on a fascinating, fascinating new project right now. Um, And, you know, you were telling me about it last year, I think when you were um, still in the midst of it and you're about to be done. We'd love to hear what you're working on now and this new book that's about to come out. So basically I've, uh, I've been really fascinated by, what does the world look like in the next 10 to 15 years? One on the one hand, and the massive grand global challenges that we face in humanity. And I've identified the 13 big grand global challenges, poverty, education, water security, food security, space, artificial intelligence, climate change, so on and so forth. And I write about the first half of the book is what does the history of the future look like over the course of the next decade or two? And then I write about well, you, you said the history of the future. That's right. A brief history of the future. What does the future look like? And uh, and then I write about one in a... Did you talk to Doc and Marty McFly? <laughs> roads, <laughs> where we're going, we yeah. don't need roads. <laughs> but there's a DeLorean from the 80s. <laughs> well, what's the book called? Or what's it going to be called? Um, I'd rather not say yet. Okay. But it will. The, the subtitle will be A Brief History of the Future. Uh, amazing. And then I write about one venture person entity or country that is moving the dial on that issue in a fundamentally revolutionary way. And I paint a picture of what does our future look like? And I will tell you, I, for one, am very excited about what we are going to achieve in our lifetimes. I was telling my uh, my youngest son, who's five, uh, three days ago, we were standing in front of our, our home and we were looking at the moon. And I said, Yaniv, by the time your daddy's age not only will you be on the moon, you will likely be on Mars. And he said to me, Daddy, are you going to come? I said, I don't know. I don't want to be alone, Daddy. (laughs) Look, in 10 years, by 2030, we are going to have the first bases on Mars. I mean, that is truly unbelievable. And then when you think that we're on our way to becoming a multi-planet society, that really is it's a game changer. We're on the what brink of a complete civilization. What, what do you mean by being a multi-planet? Like we'll have um, colonized, colonized multiple planets. Is that what you mean? We will be certainly here and on Mars. We will have what they call, what the scientists called, or in the process of terraforming Mars, making it into a uh, hospitable planet for, for, for humans and potentially on our way to others. Why? Because we can. <laughs> Why not? You really think in 10 years we're going to have people on Mars? In 10 years, we will certainly have people on the moon, and we will be figuring out ways of getting to Mars. Absolutely. It's not a question of if, Dan. It's a question of when. So my question is why? Again, just because we can? I mean, And my response is, why not? Okay. Why did people decide to travel across the ocean and, and, and go from, uh, you know, from Western Europe into the unknown? 
and discover uh, the North American continent. Boredom. So I don't know. It's just the way <laughs> of it is. I mean, look, if you look at look at look at human beings. OK, we we seem to if you're an alien and you come to this planet and you see what, what we are and what we're doing, um, you know, it, it seems like what we do, what this thing that this that this human creature is doing. I have no idea what he's doing. Um, what are you doing? That's a lot of work for a cup of coffee. Okay, so for, for, for the past 20 minutes of this conversation, every time Avi's not talking, he's been like vigorously moving his hands around. <laughs> it looks like he's dancing. Turns out he's grinding his own coffee. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, but like, I'll go back to what I was saying. Like, it just seems like what we do as a, as a human, like our species, is that we innovate. I guess we have to. It's a drug. That's what we, but that's like what we do. It's like we, we started out, however many human beings there were, and our population just grows and grows and grows. And then we innovate. And basically, if you go back to, let's say, like the agricultural revolution, 11,000 BCE, whatever it is, you like, we come up with technology that allows for people to stop having to pr- only work to produce their own food, literally to sustain themselves. So now you have technology that creates more efficient ways of producing food and that creates you know there are people that no longer have to grow food so what do you do with them and then they produce know. something else and then that just multiplies yeah. and and goes off you know exponentially or whatever it might be and you come to where we are today where we're having this conversation and over a computer and 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 obviously in washington dc and we're in israel and we're talking through the air and it's like here, here where we are today and in 15 20 years we're going to have people on mars and and it's exciting i i agree with you 100% i mean will we be able to podcast live with mars there'll be a little delay because we'll have to figure out how to get over you know the speed of light uh, but but yeah i mean it it's an uh, exciting can, time can you, to be. can you give us some uh, sneak peeks into uh some of the things you write about so first of all i have uh, i've written about for example Self-driving cars. That is almost a reality. We're seeing, you know, in Israel, you obviously have uh, mobile and that technology is, I've not seen it in other parts of the world. It's certainly not a, uh, a technology that's, uh, that's widespread here in the U.S. But we are, again, on the precipice of self-driving cars. Uh, we look at poverty. Uh, in 1970, there were 1.8, 1.9 billion people on the planet that, um, that were under the poverty line. Today, we're about 700 million, and there's a number of a number of uh, ventures that have kicked that into high gear, and that we are reducing poverty exponentially, or I, or I would say rapidly. I mean, it's uh, I wouldn't say exponentially in that particular sense, but we are seeing uh, self-driving cars. We're seeing poverty reduction. My favorite, one of my favorites, is the Khan Academy. You talked about um, ed tech with your kids. I want you to know, I use the Khan Academy every single day. It has been a lifeline to educate my children, certainly over COVID, but I had been using it before. A very interesting story, and I write about this in my new book. I went to a conference um, two and a half years ago in California, in San Francisco, and I was chatting with a buddy, and we always talk about, we, you know, we talk about our kids. How's your kid? My kid, your kid. And he says to me, you know, Avi, my, uh, my daughter, she just... Uh, she just finished studying calculus. I said, oh, that's really nice. How old is your daughter? She's 12. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> She's 12. Your daughter's got to be really bright. I swear to you, Robbie. She's not that bright. I said, come on, man. She's 12 and she just finished calculus. What are you talking about? He goes, you wouldn't believe it, man. She, she's using the Khan Academy. 
what's Khan Academy? You haven't heard of Khan Academy? Khan Academy, it's this free app online. Bill Gates uses it to teach his kids math and science. You should check that out. I get home to Washington, D.C. I download the app, and I have been addicted to the app with my kids ever since. Wow. And truly, um, it has given me the ability to uh, supercharge my children's learning in a very nice way that has both allowed me to connect with my children, but frankly, it's allowed them to learn in a, in my experience, it has been a holistic tool to teach them math in a very nice way in, 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 in small bite-sized learning chunks. And over COVID, it has definitely, it has saved my children's education. And the Khan Academy isn't just math. It's biology, physics, history, art history, economics, whatever. We've reached the stage of human development where education anywhere in the world is literally free. We have democratized education. And, and when I, and those are the technologies, innovations that I write about that have really inspired me and I believe will supercharge humanity. Do they, in, do they integrate? I, I, I've, I've seen Khan Academy. Uh, my kids are a little bit younger than yours, but they use it, uh, you know, from time, you know, from time to time. Um, are there any school systems that you know that are integrating Khan Academy into their curriculum? So there's only one in California. The Khan Academy actually has a real school. Uh, and then there are others in the U.S. that are that are playing with this technology. I don't know who has and who has not. I certainly, in my experience, I've used it as a baseline tool to ensure my kids not only know their own grade, but have now gone well beyond. And I use it as a way, and as a parent, I know that the content there is absolutely safe. And so I let them, uh, on a regular basis... I basically say to them, you have X amount of time that you, you, could, you must go into the Khan Academy and go, go study whatever it is that you want to study. My middle child is obsessed with Imagineering, which is, you know, it's, it's a whole science of, of engineering in terms of a whole host of engineering projects. And he is obsessed. Uh, my other son loves Egyptology. And so he goes in and he studies all about Egyptology. So I look at that as being a portal into the education that makes you a rounded and interesting human being and allows my children to interact with the world in a way that they could not have interacted prior to. It's great. I, I think that it would be really, really great if we, you know, if we can see more schools around the world kind of, you know, circling the square, so to speak, and integrating that into their actual curriculum, because we're seeing, like you were talking about before, like the, the, we perceive failures or challenges of Zoom school. And I know that your wife teaches Zoom school. My wife teaches, our wives are both teachers. So like they're, they're now full-time Zoom school teachers. Um, and it's just frustrating. For uh, yeah. Them. And the school system here, the education system has not figured out how to properly and effectively transition to this world of online learning. I mean, my wife is literally having to make it up as she goes um, because they weren't prepared for this. And this is like a new challenge. And, and on, the, on the face of things, though, I mean, yes, I mean, it's only been, I know it feels like it's a whole lifetime, but it's only been six months, seven months, whatever it is. So Are you it's sure? Like, I know, right? So we're going to have to make it up a little bit as we go along. Yeah. But to, to, to kind of piggyback onto, you know, Avi's wheelhouse of content here, it's those situations which forge new innovations sure. and new narratives and new understandings of how to do these things. So it could be exciting to see where we could go with this. Avi, is there any, like... When you look at all of the challenges that we're dealing with right now as as humanity, is there any one 
field in innovation where you say, you know, this is the the challenge that that we're most uh, quickly going to see innovation solve the major problem, you know, and it's exciting, uh, you know, it's going to be this, you know, it's gonna, climate change is going to be solved. Yeah, what's or, the major challenge that will be first and most effectively solved that you think that you saw? I don't know that I, I can't answer that question. I can tell you that we are exponentially moving to solving almost all of them, if not all of them. I look at climate change and the, the part of climate change is obviously a multidiscipline problem, but the, the aspect that I looked at very carefully for my next book was um, was uh, water rising, was oceans rising, which which worries me tremendously. It, it actually will not. It doesn't appear that it will affect Israel tremendously, but the east and the west coast of the United States, and you look at something like uh, Alexandria, or you look at Bangkok, some of the cities in the major cities in the world, uh, Basra, in Iraq, are going to be underwater if we don't do something fundamentally soon to change it. And I looked at how Holland deals with this issue. Yeah, Holland is a country that is over 60% under the waterline, under the ocean line. And they have basically, they are good to go for the next, they say, between 100 and 200 years. And I find that to be the way and the, the methods that they have employed in order to ensure that they survive rising oceans is a method that should be and ought to be used in large parts of the world and and and, and can be used. Right. And, that's, and that's nothing new for them either. If yeah, I'm they've been doing it for a while. Been, no, they've got the Dutch boy who's been sticking his finger in the dike for the last several hundred years, but they've... It hasn't moved. That's <laughs> <laughs> not moved. I, I look at, let's take, for example, uh, Japan. Japan is a leader when it comes to uh, technology that protects its citizens from tsunamis and from earthquakes, disaster resilience. It is the most disaster resilient country on the face of the planet today. And it's tech that can be and ought to be used in our major cities. For example, in Israel today, you all know that uh, we're, there's Tamash Moshim Bishmona. There's these projects around the country in order to strengthen the buildings. Israel ought to be looking building for, for potential earthquakes, right? Yeah, exactly. Israel ought to be looking to Japan in order to really strengthen its buildings and its infrastructure in order to brace for what is almost certainly going to be a huge earthquake to come in that part of the world. I want to just bring it back to the Khan Academy. Israel would benefit greatly if it actually translated some of the content into Hebrew. Yeah. I, uh, my sister lives right outside of Jerusalem, and I told her about the Khan Academy, and she she downloaded the Hebrew version, which is in a beta form, which I got to tell you, sucks. Yeah. It really is. It is really terrible. Uh, there is no reason why Israel doesn't have, uh, through the Ministry of Education, a Khan Academy that is literally native to its language. Khan today is something in nearly 30 native languages wow. and has an amazing user experience. Israel, Hebrew, not yet one of them. What, what's the story? Who, who's, uh, I mean, obviously someone named Khan, but uh, who, who, what, how did this all start? Where's the money coming from? Where's the knowledge of how to do all this coming from? What an incredible story. So Salman Khan was an investment banker um, and his niece uh, was struggling with math. And he started creating videos in his closet in order to help his niece. Eventually, Bill Gates saw one of the videos uh, in the Aspen Ideas Festival, talked about it on stage. He then became a donor to the – it is a nonprofit, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, Khan Academy is free. Let me be clear. Yeah, yeah. Anyone can download it. Um, uh, Bill Gates became one of its first major donors. Carlos Slim, who is the – I think it, Today, the, lar- the the wealthiest man in the world. The wealthiest uh, man with the coolest name in the world. He's, he's Mexican-Lebanese. Carlos Slim. Awesome. <laughs> he uh, 
I think he gave uh, the Khan Academy $300 million in order to have everything in Spanish. It's in Arabic. It's in Hindi. It's in Chinese. It's in Japanese. It's not in Hebrew. Uh, it's not in Hebrew. You know, oh, oh, now, can, now, I want you to though imagine, can you imagine if the Khan Academy were in Hebrew, you would... You would revolutionize the country, as they say in Arabic, from the knocking on the door until you say goodbye. Like you could have people all the way in the north and in the south. Like we're not talking about Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, the wealthier parts of the country. We're talking about all over the country could essentially supercharge its citizenry and basically embrace the ability to learn on their own at their own pace. And, and this gaps between the center and the periphery. There's no center and periphery at that point. Once you, it, you, that that concept no longer exists. And that, my friend, that thing, that is the future. When you travel around the world to conferences, you were mentioning before you were in a conference in Saudi Arabia. Are more and more people around the world, even in countries that previously did not have relations with Israel or that are perceived as hostile, are they? Are, do we have a name for ourselves now? Um, it, it, you, you, because of innovation, because of innovation in the Arab world, are they are they looking at it as as like we've reached a point where our geopolitical concerns with them are no longer as pressing as a concern as their gain that they could make from being in a relationship with us, and that's how they more and more look at it. I think that I think we we've come to a confluence of mutual interests. The first is we are all of us are facing in the region major problems. Israel has solutions. One, two. The region is looking to Iran as being a major enemy in terms of stoking the flames of terrorism, of, uh, you know, just to name one, um, and realize that Islamist radicalism. Islamic radicalism. Yeah. And they're seeing, wow, Israel is not an enemy, two. And three, I think they're looking at the Palestinians and saying, wow, it's been 72 years and you've still not gotten your act together. Yeah. yeah they've they've, they've missed a few boats. Yeah, the trains left the station. Trains off the stations, and frankly, now let's look over the course of the next few years. You could see countries like Sudan, you could see Kuwait, Oman, um, even Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, I, uh, I had a, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of the most, from to my mind, one of the most fascinating places in the world. You know, it has something. It has more desalination plants. I think the number is thirty or forty more than any other country. Was it three hundred? It has a lot of desalination plants. It has the most number of desalination plants in the world. Saudi Arabia has something called uh, has a program called Vision Twenty Thirty, yeah. right. where you can go online and you can see all the things that they want to accomplish over the course of the next ten years because they realize they're running out of oil. Yeah. And that once you start pegging to, wow, we want to have a certain number of unicorns. That's a that's a billion dollar company. Or you want to? We want to basically solve our water problem, or we want to have an education system that is that is that is world class. When you look at, we want to solve food security, water security. We want to be an AI leader. Naturally, you look to others in the world that are solving those types of problems, and the nearest one and one of the most advanced is Israel. And they realize, wow, yes, we can work together. Yes, we can create a better future together, and yes, our citizens can work together to make the world a better place. Yeah. This is a strange, strange side note type question, but when that happens, do, do, do we see some sort of like a reformation in Islam? You know what? I'm talking to, again, the Emiratis, and and you see it happening. You see it, it's, it feels like it's a top-down directive from the government telling the state-funded clerics 
to moderate. You see Islam having moderated. You see them, at least in the UAE, about 10, 15 years ago, they really came down on the Muslim Brotherhood. And they basically told them, you have a choice. You can either, um, you know, very nicely spend the rest of your life in jail or worse, or you can moderate. And um, and they just instilled a massive program from the mosques and the school system and all over. You see it starting to happen in Saudi Arabia. Um, I think just a couple of weeks ago, the the official, uh, basically their version of the chief rabbi, um, at, you know, at the famous uh, Friday sermon, sermon. Uh, talked about you know, accepting Israel talked about, uh, you, you see it happening from, from a lot of different places. You see a moderation of Islam. I'm getting the sense of that. People are telling me that they see it. Um, preaching tolerance is kind of all going together. Are we going to get to a situation where we have more enemies amongst the, what do you want to call it? Progressive leftists in the West. No, no, that's a passe thing that I think that, I don't know. I'd be glad Ideolo- ideological enemies. I mean, are, I, are you I, going to, because I, you could look, we're having a conversation about how the Arab world is opening to the idea of open relations with Israel on the same day that, you know, Columbia university passes a BDS resolution okay. or things like that. Are. Let them. No, but what I'm saying is like, I'm not saying is one justified or not. I I'm saying, do we get to a point? Very good. Do we get to a point where, there are more people who are more vocally. I, I, just, I just want to point out, it's been 37 minutes and Avi finally finished making his coffee. <laughs> Listen, I had to brew it. I had to get the water rolling and I had to unmute my mic and mute it while the water was uh, was becoming... Uh, was, was pretty sure you, what, wait a second, what kind of coffee is it? I'm pretty sure you ran to Colombia in the meantime to get the beans from the farmer also. For real though, I want to see what kind of coffee. <laughs> so it's actually, it's a blend between uh, between Honduras and Ethiopian coffee. And you went to both of those countries. That's how long it took you to get the beans. For a mighty fine cup of coffee. To get your 15,000 steps in. You jest, but don't make me. It better be a good cup of coffee. Well, what, are, what are some of these other like world-changing innovations? Um, I mean, look, you know, we all know about Tesla, right? Tesla is revolutionary, both in the fact that it is – it's an electric car. I mean, we are, by 2030, uh, futurists are predicting that we are not going to be using, we're, we're going to be almost 100% renewable energy. That's, yeah. that's extraordinary. Or what you mean, like today when you go to Whole Foods. If we get to a place of renewable energy, that's going to have an effect on the climate, no? Yeah, it's a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or take, for example, food. You have, uh, you have all these, uh, these fake, quote-unquote, fake meat products, mm-hmm. Right, you have Beyond Meat, which is you convert uh, you convert certain plant protein and you turn it into something that tastes like meat. We're on a virtuous cycle where we are living more in harmony with our planet, and the planet that we give our children, our children's children, is going to be a much much better place. And instead of stealing from the planet, you know, we are the only creature on the earth that doesn't actually give back, but only takes. Mm. And what my book I hope to do is. It's still this idea that we can become a humanity 2.0 and we can give back to the world and we can live in harmony with it. And we can absolutely solve these grand global challenges that we face. So let's, let's talk for one second because you're an expert on the issue as well, you know, about the dark side of this, which is we're coming together through our innovation, through the confluence of interests with, with the, with the Arab world. Uh, yet there's there are millions of people in Iran as well that are not uh, you know p- part of the government structure. Is Iran going to get on the train as well, or 
I mean, is 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 that happening? Look, I, I left my crystal ball back in Washington, D.C. I can't really tell you. Here's what I can tell you. My friend and colleague, the late Uri Lubani, who was uh, Israel's last ambassador to Iran, yeah. always used to say as follows. There are two clocks. Clock number one is the regime change clock, and uh, the second is the nuclear bomb clock. And the whole point of sanctions, which we're seeing today, is to slow down the nuclear bomb clock and speed up the regime change clock. And what the what the Islamic Republic of Iran today is trying to do is speed up the bomb clock in order to ensure the survival of the regime. Uh, I don't know what will happen in the next decade or two. I can say that Iran is one of the most advanced – it is a, an advanced society when it comes to innovation. It is an extraordinary population that has tremendous potential, and it is my most fervent desire to see that society work in harmony with others around the world, including with Israel. Kenny Eretzon, may it be so in our lifetime. I, I, that possibility exists, but it is by no means a, a, it is by no means assured. The future certainly looks bright for countries that innovate. The UAE and Israel among them, and I believe Saudi Arabia will get there too, and it will work with a whole host of other countries that are highly innovative. I, I do believe that the world is going in a, in a positive direction. We generally look at the negative direction, but the stories that I feature both in Thou Shalt Innovate and in my next book, they've, they've shown me at least a clear path that we are heading to in terms of improving the planet, curing the sick, feeding the hungry, and helping the needy. You asked about another innovation, that is really inspiring from Israel. I, for example, love the uh, I love a company called Alpha Omega. It is uh, based in Nazareth, and uh, they created what I fondly call the GPS for the brain. For any of your listeners that have Parkinson's, Parkinson's is a horrible neurological disease that afflicts millions of people around the world. And in order to treat it, doctors use something called deep brain stimulation. Deep brain stimulation was created in the 1980s in France by a man by the name of Aline Louis Benabid. But it took a professor at the Hebrew University, Chagai Bergman, to figure out that in order to engage in deep brain stimulation, which is an electrode that you stick into the brain, you needed, you, you needed, to, um, you needed to pulse the basal ganglia, which sits right in the back of the brain. The only problem is if you don't get to the exact spot, you either turn someone into a vegetable or worse, you kill them. Now, scientists discovered that every part of the brain emits a unique sound signature. And Imad and Remunis, uh, not Jews, they are Christians who are from Nazareth, started Alpha Omega and have created the world's leading uh, GPS for the brain that allows hospitals all over the world to get to the exact spot in order to pulse the brain, in order to treat Parkinson's, essential tremor, Tourette's, and a whole host of other neurological diseases. Now, that's inspiring for a host, a whole host of reasons. One, because it's just incredible that you can use sound in order to get to the exact spot, but also they leverage diversity, Christians, Muslims, and Jews in their company in order to both cure lives and make the world a better place and strive to a society that we want to see in Israel. It's our most sublime hope to basically have a diverse society that cures and solves these grand global challenges. Unbelievable. Did, did, you know, diving into these, um, you know, the book talking about how Israeli innovations are making the world a better place, the new book about how these life changing 
um, you know, humanity 2.0 type things. How has that changed your life um, in how you live, in how you see the world, and how you practice? Have you have you changed as a person because of this journey of exploring and writing uh, these two books? I have fundamentally changed as a human, both my outlook and my perspective. I've become much more a half glass full rather than a half glass empty. I would say I've shed my depression. Um, when we were working together at the Washington Institute, Dan, and looking at radical Islam, I want you to know for many, many years I would come home and I just was very sad. It was very, it was very hard to come home. And certainly when I had children, I decided I really don't want to work this issue anymore. It's just too hard. Um, and by happenstance, I got into tech. Look, I look at, for example, the Khan Academy, which has fundamentally changed my relationship with my children. I will eventually get an electric car. I now I now go to regular I go regular Whole Foods and I and I buy I buy Beyond Meat. I really look at these technologies and I feel like I'm more in tune with the future and what I see that is ahead of us it is so inspiring. It is so much better than we can possibly imagine today that it, I can't help but be inspired. I can't help but look at our neighbors in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Egypt, in the Gulf, and even in Iran and other places and say, wow, we are approaching humanity 2.0. We are solving our challenges. We are going to work together. It is only, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And that fundamentally inspires me. And that, is, I don't want to say it's a, it, 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 it almost doesn't depend on our politicians anymore. The fact that you can, we can each of us change the world fundamentally based on very, very basic tools. Technophilanthropists like Bill Gates are fundamentally changing the planet. And that does not require a lot of money. That just requires a kick-ass idea. Wow. That really is unbelievable. Yeah. Spending years looking into your enemies and kind of the dreck of humanity is, is, is depressing, is depressing. Um, you know, something, uh, and then you, you did this kind of, uh, I don't know exactly what you did and you probably can't exactly talk about it, but you also went to government. Um, and, um, you know, I've also spent a little bit of time there and it's, it's a hard life because you see the worst of humanity and you can't really talk about it either. You know, cops have to see the worst of humanity. Um, people in, you know, certain positions and in, in certain places in life, people who have to go to war, um, even if they're just wars, you, these are not pleasant things to have to deal with. So um, is that what made you leave kind of this world of Middle East research and foreign policy research? I mean, look, I'm still fundamentally involved in Middle East research. It's just I look at it from a completely different lens. Instead of looking at terrorism, terrorism, finance, money launderism, money laundering, war, killing, uh, beheadings, I'm looking at technologies that are fundamentally changing our planet. And I find it a more inspiring journey, and it's one that makes me much, much happier. I uh, it has allowed me to see the best of humanity rather than the worst. I like it. What, what's the company you founded and and run or companies? So I, uh, when I'm not writing, I, I generally call writing my expensive habit. I, although it has certainly enriched my life, <laughs> it has made it experientially very rich. I do two things in Washington. I have a real, I, I have a credit card processing company, uh, that basically is, uh, is like Square or PayPal and provides, uh, B2B services. It allows companies to accept Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express. 
And then I invest in a whole host of uh, in, uh, companies, including real estate companies and uh, private equity and venture capital. I'm, 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 I'm trying to put my money better use in that way to allow me to write more. I, th- I think we can identify with that. Absolutely. <laughs> expensive habits as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, but no, but look, you just said something, and I know that you weren't giving a lip service. You were serious about it, but I'm thinking about it too a lot, which is that we live in a time where you can either be extraordinarily depressed about the state of affairs if you open up the newspaper, if you look outside and see everybody wearing masks and you, re- you know, relent on uh, and reminisce about what life used to be like and where are we going and woe is me and all this kind of garbage. Or, or you can have the worldview that you have, Avi, which is, you know, you made a conscientious decision, you know, and forget about what the catalyst was for that or, or, or what, you know, or when it was. It was you probably you were coming home every day and feeling like, you know, shit, like, like, God, what is going on? And, and, and you had small kids or whatever it was, but it's like you don't have to have this mindset. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to feel like you know, everything is a short game and what's going to happen in a month and the election's coming up and what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, take the, you know, scope out a little bit and see what's going to happen in five years and 10 years. Uh, and then the picture becomes, or can be much more optimistic and it can become a much more better way to look at, uh, at your place in, in the world. So I'm inspired by your optimism. I know that Dan's inspired by your optimism. Yeah. It's mind blowing. I remember when you first, uh, we sat at a, at a, Asian restaurant in Jerusalem exactly just about a year ago. And when you were telling me about this book and you were telling me about some of these stories and my mind was blown because I love this kind of stuff. I love these kind of things that expand our thinking and say where, you know, we, we think the world looks like this, but if we just look a little past it and if we open our mind, it, it can, it can look a lot bigger, better, brighter. Um, what What's your next project? Have you started thinking about like, where you want to go next? I will say this. I challenge any one of our listeners to think about where we are today. And if you can find uh, any aspect of our lives that is not fundamentally better than it was 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, um, I would be surprised. We all have running toilets. We all have electricity. We all have cars. We all have cell phones. We have heat in our homes. I have toilet paper that actually functions. I mean, we have fundamentally better lives today and our lives not for all but for the vast majority of the planet and and is getting better and for and for the rising billion it is also getting better it is also getting better we have to solve those challenges too but all with time i agree i agree and i think i think um you just need perspective you need perspective you need to say you know our our lives are fundamentally better than even a generation ago too. And, and they're more complicated in a lot of ways. Um, and maybe now we're living in this kind of upheaval where you know, people are having to learn new jobs and that they didn't even imagine that they would have to do when they have to take education in new directions. But it, it's, again, it's, you can look at it half full or you can, the glass is half full or half empty. How do you approach these challenges? Do you approach it? Some people don't like that. You know, some people like the kind of um, romanticized, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, simplistic life where okay you know if i just go to school and go to high school and uh, get the factory job or get the whatever and uh you know i'll be fine and i'll have my house and i'll live my life and uh and, and that'll be it and i'll die and and i we're not in that world anymore you can't just be like okay if i just do what they told me go to school get decent grades get a job 
I'll get a mortgage. I'll be able to support a family. We'll go on a vacation every year and drive a minivan and my life will be nice and I'll retire and I'll go to Florida and everything will be okay. And we're not there anymore. Shit. And uh, look, our generation, uh, we're just, you know, we're a few years younger than you. Um, but like, you can't do that anymore. You can't just sit back. You have to constantly think and, and constantly read the map and constantly, you know, your education, you could have a university degree, two university degrees, and it can be meaningless. And you can have no university degree and be doing amazing because all the things that we were taught to grow up with are like, you know, they, what does it mean anymore? You have to be constantly reinventing yourself um, if you want to, you know, th- this, is, this is a world that's meant for people who are actively engaged in it. You can't be like a passive, at least in the West, you can't be a passive citizen anymore. Innovate or die. Innovate or die. And, and you have to. Um, I, I got to ask you about you know, the, the first uh, presidential debate was last night. Um, by the time this episode comes out, it'll have been, you know, a few days later. But uh, l- without getting into your individual politics, because I, I think that's the, le- the least important of this discussion. Um, how do you feel about American society right now? The polarization, um, again, no matter which side of the political map you are on and is there anything in this world of innovation you're examining that can get us past this polarization? Because in a lot of ways, the polarization has come out of the innovations of social media and, and us being able um, to get into our own echo chambers and surround ourselves with only like-minded people, and like-minded ideas. So I will say living on Capitol Hill, I've, um, you know, for the last six months, I've been going to the national mall almost every day and I bring my kids, they go out on their scooters and bikes And we have seen a lot of demonstrations that have taken place over the course of the last few months, really right right in front of our home. Um, It comes back to the idea of what are our blind spots as humans? What are we not seeing that others do see? And when you ask about what does the future look like for America, I, I can't answer what the future of America looks like. I can say that innovation will continue to come out of this country um, because it has some fundamentally amazing strengths, including diversity. Um, this is Silicon Valley will continue to innovate. I'm not sure that it will continue to innovate the types of things that are going to make all of the world a better place. It will certainly do that in part. And look at a country like Israel, and I'm inspired by the the driving vision of tikkun olam, which is not the only thing that is inspiring Israelis, but frankly is part and parcel of the story. The next generation uh, that's coming out of the United States, the millennials, they do want to make the world a better place. So I look at that part of society and I'm, I'm fundamentally inspired by that idea that yes, we can make the world a better place. How, how do you get over the polarization though to do that? I mean, it, it seems like, it seems like, it's almost bringing America. It's supposed to be the greatest country in the world. It feels like, look, we're, we both grew up in America and we're sitting in Israel. Um, it feels from the way, you know, kind of the front row seat that we're watching that America is grinding and slowing down. The only, the only solution that I have is a, is a one letter, is a, is a, is a one, is one word, compassion. Really try to see, you know, it comes back to the Frank, uh, the, the Covey School of Thought, seek to understand, then be understood, and have a lot of compassion. What is someone else's reality? 
when I interviewed Hezbollah when I was living in Egypt, I stepped outside of my own reality and tried to understand their reality. Um, and it fundamentally shook me and forced me to look at the world in a different way. And I hope that the United States in the years to come, in looking at these societal problems, is able to muster up enough compassion to understand what are some of the other demographics dealing with. I, for one, when I think about uh, the Jewish people and African-Americans, and African-Americans in large part have had to deal with the conversation of how do you deal with police brutality? And I have to tell you, every time I think about it, it fundamentally breaks my heart. We as Jews also have that conversation. I was raised by uh, survivors of the Holocaust. And I remember as a child, many, many conversations about the atrocities of the Holocaust in World War II. And that is a conversation I've recently had to have with my own children that was, was very painful to have. How do you open up the, the world of the banality of evil to young children? And it has given me, um, it has given me much more compassion for what people are going through. If anything is going to get this country over the hump of dealing with the polarization, I believe it is that. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, our second guest that we had, it was right when the uh, Michael Floyd riots were George, was, George Floyd, George Floyd, sorry, were, were taking place. And um, we, we had as our very second guest a, an African-American Orthodox rabbi from New York to, to understand this experience. And, and here in Israel, you know, we don't live this. We, you know, um, a, a lot of my friends here are American immigrants to Israel. Um, more, more of them are probably politically conservative than they are, than they are politically progressive. And, you know, like I said, echo chambers, we're all in this kind of world of echo chambers. And, and so they're probably more, you know, getting that kind of side of the story. And, and I remember, you know, trying to talk to them. And so we, we wanted to talk to this rabbi, um, uh, Rabbi Chase Rishon and try to kind of get this perspective that we just don't have because, you know, I don't remember ever being pulled over by a cop and, and, and thinking, you know, oh shit, this is going to end really bad. You know, at most I was like, oh crap, I'm going to get a ticket. Like I've never had that experience of fearing for my life when, when being pulled over for a traffic violation. And I don't, I don't even want to get into the, the whole, okay, you know, chicken or egg argument of why is police, I don't even want to get into that. Like there's an experience and, and, and I think you're absolutely right. We have to be compassionate. We have to, we have to have empathy. We have to listen before we want to speak. Um, and that's something that, I don't know how you introduce it into society. Um, I kind of a little bit of what we want to do with this platform and the podcast is introduce that concept of listening and trying to to look at things with nuance and perspective to the Jewish world and to Israel and Jewish related conversations. That's that's kind of one of the big reasons why we started this. And um, so, I, you know, re, I really hope, um, you know, any of our listeners can take that message and maybe, maybe try to think and, and look through other people's perspectives. Um, so to kind of wrap things up here and kind of maybe on a brighter note, um, we'd like to always ask some of our guests, um, what kind of movies or books are you into these days? And in your special case, what's a really cool gadget other than that Star Trek ring that you have on that, uh, that you can give us a tip onto that you, that you can lead us onto. 
So this summer, I I went through, I ripped through a few books. I um, I read Natan Sharansky's uh, uh, Fear No Evil, which came out I don't know thirty years ago, but I have to tell you, it was one of the most. It's been sitting on my bookshelf for years, and it's literally been staring at me. And and I was inspired. Uh, I was inspired not only by his incredible story, but he has a section in the book that I now think about every day. He talks about something called the intersectionality of souls, if I captured the term correctly, where he basically says that he he is bound in time and in space to our people's history, going all the way back to Sinai in the various parts, to the present and to the future. And and that our that our actions really do matter. What we do today really does matter to people, to ourselves and to people in the future. He talked about that when he was in the gulag and there would be those that would basically agree to whatever it is that the KGB wanted. It, it, it took a war away at the soul of those that were refuseniks, those that were standing up to the KGB. And so ultimately our actions really do matter. And I was inspired by how a man could essentially stare evil at the face and then not only not be scarred by it, but rise to the occasion and do his part to change society and make it better. He is, from my perspective, one of the, the 36 hidden sadiqim in the world, him and Ellie Beer. And, uh, and I, I'm so grateful that he chose to go into Israeli politics and ultimately to become the head of the Jewish agency. And I, 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 I hope he continues to, to do work on behalf of the Jewish people, the state of Israel and the world. Um, one of the other books that I, uh, I started I, I, rereading now is Sapiens. I love that book by Yuval Harari. It's now been translated into, I think, 57 languages. Um, I love his perspective on the planet and how we have, how humanity has crafted stories in order to scale and how his vision is how we can fundamentally work with others. I found that book it is still on my bookshelf. Even when I'm not reading it, I, I identify deeply, deeply with it. Those are the two that I've been thinking about mostly this summer. And a cool piece of tech you can leave us on, give us a tip. Um, look, I, we talked about the Oura Ring, which for me is my favorite piece of technology. Um, the Oura Ring is, mm-hmm. uh, is an advanced EKG that tells you how many steps you've, uh, you've done, your, your body temperature, how well you've slept, how, how fit you are to work out that day, and whether you should or should not take a nap. Um, and up until nine months ago, um, I, I got it back in January. I had originally heard about it from a friend at South by Southwest, the, the major ideas festival in Austin. I thought, what, what is that ring? What is, what is that thing on your hand? And he told me about it and it took me some time to get it up until nine months ago, my entire adult life, I would have told you that I'm tired. I'm tired. My kids, my dad, I'm, t- I'm tired. Um, I am no longer tired. It has uh, shifted how I sleep. Um, once you start following what the ring tells you in terms of when to go to bed and it tells you every day and it changes every day. Uh, it tells you when you're really like what I call your sleep train, when your sleep train is coming, I am no longer, I'm no longer tired, which is talk about revolutionary. It is, it is life affirming and life changing. 
I would, I'm going to, I don't want to say I'm going to die with that ring on my finger, but I certainly, it, it almost, uh, for males, most males do not wear rings unless they're married. So it kind of looks ridiculous to have a ring on your finger in that way. Um, but I, I absolutely, I, I don't, I, I don't want to live without that piece of technology because it is helped me sleep better and function better when I'm awake. Does it change how you eat? To how I eat? Um, interestingly, if I eat too late at night, the ring asks me the following morning, it seems that you didn't sleep so well. Did you eat too late? And so only in terms of it has forced me to start uh, to stop eating much later in the evening than I would have liked. Up until I had the ring, I probably would have eaten dinner, I don't know, at 8, 8.30 or 9. I don't eat anymore past 7.30, quarter to 8, because it affects deeply the way I sleep. It is one ring to rule them all. <laughs> It is one small ring for man, one giant ring leap for mankind. That's awesome. I'm going to have to get one of these. Is it really expensive? It's $300. Okay, not bad. Okay. Not bad. I think I'm going to order one of these bad boys. Now, I will only tell you that you need to have a size. So it's actually it's a two-part punch. The first thing that they send you is the sizing kit because everyone has different uh, uh, finger sizes. Um, and so you get the kit first, and then they, and then they send you the ring. Does does um do you have to have it on con- like I'm assuming you can't lift weights with that thing? I take it to the gym. So generally, when I'm lifting heavy weights, I like will take it off and then put it back on my finger when I finish with the set. But I, I take it to the gym with it. Interesting. Um, I'm gonna have to get one of these things. It sounds really just just credit me when you when you get this thing and it fundamentally changes the way you sleep. You just you give me kudos. You just give me kudos. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that's changed my sleep now with COVID. Is because I'm working primarily from home now, um, and so I, I work really late into the night. Um, I'll, I'll work until you know. You really do. I really do. Um, one, two at night, but then I'll let myself sleep in. You know, I'll, I'll get my six, seven hours the next day, and I'll let myself get that. When prior to that, or so I think, and prior to that, I would try to stay up till one, two, but then I'd have to get up at seven, and I'd be just dead tired the entire day living off coffee um i'm curious i'm curious to see yeah i see your coffee that took you four hours to make um <laughs> i hope it was yeah, worth I it. my own coffee i mean listen anyone's drinking coffee like elite coffee no no no, uh, no, no, no. We, we actually bought a coffee machine i finally made the switch we were using the capsules and uh, i hated the weight bad for the plant it was excellent coffee but it was it was awful for the plant i saw the amount of capsules that i was producing and I said, enough. I don't care how cheap it is. I went out and I bought a machine where you just pour in the beans and it grinds them per cup. It's excellent. We love it. Um, and, and even if it's a little more expensive, uh, I'm happy that we're not producing tons and tons of capsules yeah. and waste. When I, when I told the salesperson for the coffee company that, she was like, I don't get it. It's cheaper. Why, why don't you? <laughs> I, I, why, what do you care? <laughs> She clearly doesn't subscribe to the win-win-win school of thought. Win for me, win for you, win for the planet. Clearly doesn't. So um, how how can our listeners, and we'll put all this up on the website, how can they follow what you're doing? How can they reach out to you if they want to invite you for a lecture? How can they find the book in one of the uh, 40-odd languages that it's been translated in? Um, How can people keep in touch with you? They can certainly email me, go to the website, www.aviorsh, that's A-V-I-J-O-R-I-S-C-H.com. They can buy Thou Shalt Innovate wherever fine books are sold, including on Amazon, and uh, certainly to come out for lectures, easy enough to find me on the website. Uh, my email address is avi at aviorsh.com. Awesome, man. 
Namaste. We really, really thank you for uh, for speaking to us. Namaste. Shalom. Peace. Salam. Always, always, always fun to talk to you, Avi. <laughs> well, we hope to see you in Israel as soon as possible, as soon yeah. as this COVID garbage is over. God, you know, I, I, this summer was the first time in 25 years that I had not been to Israel in the summer. My kids literally are, they're, in many ways, they're suffering. They, they're now wearing Hebrew t-shirts every day. They really, my, my seven-year-old, he says to me, Daddy, when are we going to climb Masada? And our, in our house, we have a rule. It's a very simple rule. Children, uh, once they become four, they get to go to the APAC policy conference and they have to climb Masada in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> Good rules. Yeah, we're we're missing our annual America trip this summer, and uh, we're all bummed out about it. Tov Aviorish, thank you so much for joining us on Juanced. We wish you nothing but the best, and good luck with this new book. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. Stay safe, stay healthy. May both of you, may you both be inscribed in the Book of Life for a healthy, happy, and wonderful year. And may uh, may we all be blessed with more peace and with uh, and emerging from the from the fog of COVID and do our part to make the world a better place. Fantastic. And have a wonderful Sukkot. Yalla, bye. Yalla, yalla. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.